Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The story of the day, of course, around here, uh, one that has been brewing for weeks now, is the Sarah Jama story. The MPP, I was going to say the NDP MPP, but no longer. She was kicked out of her party today. And she also was censured at the legislature, meaning she essentially is a seat holder and that's it now at Queens Park. I want to bring in John Best. He is the publisher of the Bay Observer, guy we love having on the show here whenever we can get him. John, how are you today? Doing well, Scott. Nice to be with you. Uh, you as well. I was just talking to Scott Thompson before we came on my show here, and I said I have zero level of surprise. If you had asked me on a scale of zero to 100 what my level of shock was that Sarah Jamo would find herself on the outs, I'm at a zero right now because it, it was inevitable, it seemed, that this was going to happen sooner or later. Maybe the timing is a surprise, but are, are, are you surprised that what happened today happened? No, I, I think what uh, uh, Styles was interviewed, and she said there were a number of factors, but I would think that when uh, Sarah Jama uh, pinned that letter that she'd already apologized for, she refused to take it down, um, and that got uh, Styles quite a bit of ridicule from both the left and the right side of the media, and then pinning the story as she did, which means it pops up first thing on her web on her uh, social media account. I think that was probably uh, the the beginning of it, uh, or the end of it, rather the beginning of the well, end. It, anyway, it really was I, sticking a, a finger in Styles' eye, was it not? Yeah, it was it was definitely a finger gesture, and uh, I think Styles just felt there was, you know, she's really got nothing to lose by um, by expelling Sarah Jama. We aren't going to have an election for at least three years. Uh, whether you have 23 members or 24 in a, in a majority government really makes very little difference. And you have to think about the seat. Uh, Hamilton Centre is probably the safest NDP seat in Ontario. And uh, with all this controversy around Jama, there's a possibility that if she was the candidate next time, uh, all this stuff would come up, and it, I, I still think it's an NDP seat, frankly, but it, it could make it a, a much tougher race. And uh, this way, uh, assuming that they don't make up between now and uh, the next election, uh, they'll be nominating, the NDP will be nominating somebody else to run for that seat. And uh, it's a it's a very safe NDP seat. So I think there's a bit of calculus here as well. In what way? Well, just the sense that, you know, you've got somebody that, that's making you really look bad and uh, it's obvious that you're not going to be able to get along. Um, you know, we can't have, I guess we could have four insincere apologies instead of three, but, hmm. you know, it, it really has become quite clear that, uh, that JAMA is not interested in being a team player uh, with the NDP. So I, I think it was time to you know, sort of cut your losses and uh, end the thing. Wasn't this though, I mean, there were plenty of people who were raising flags before the election and Merritt Stiles was right on board, right alongside Sarah Jamov going into this election. She's the right person for this, blah, blah, blah. Does she not wear some of this too? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely she does. I mean, the red flags were up before the election 
uh, you know, they scrambled uh, the weekend before the election or team scrambled to, to wipe out as many of these uh, controversial tweets as they could. But of course, they they never really go away. And, and so a lot of that stuff came back. Um, it, it it's you know, yeah, it's a little it was a by election. So the, her seat count was only was only going to be changed by one, either plus or minus. And maybe she felt that uh, it would uh, you know, that uh, Jamo's popularity in Hamilton was something that she simply had to take into account. Um, you know, there was a lot of a lot of vocal support for Jama. And the other thing is she had been a candidate for the nomination for several months. So to pull the pin at the last minute, uh, there, there may have been a calculation that that, that would look even worse. And you were just handing the seat to somebody else. Yeah, I, I, I'm maybe you heard something I didn't hear, but I, I mean, I never heard this wild uprising that Sarah Jama was the most popular candidate of all time in Hamilton and there was nobody else that could possibly have done that. I, I've I've said this a bunch of times. I think you could take a an old tire and paint it orange and run it as a candidate in Hamilton Center and it wins. I mean, you could literally put anybody in there as an NDP and that person would win in Hamilton Center. I don't know they had to go with her. Well, I don't think they did have to go with her, but she was certainly the the most prominent uh, candidate. I, 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 there was another individual who was tweeting out that uh, he got uh, he was disqualified from seeking the nomination, and and he felt that the reasons for his disqualification were unfair. But there really wasn't much of a contest. It wasn't like it was uh, one of these conventions where you know they go into the fourth and fifth ballot it, it everybody seemed to be uh, ndp everybody seemed to be fine with her running and notwithstanding mm-hmm. the fact that there had been some controversy even uh unrelated to social media you know she had been charged uh, in an altercation with the police over the shutdown of an encampment so you know uh i i there, there wasn't I think a, a really viable alternative presented, and here we were. Uh, you know, we were almost less than a week away from the election, and uh, so away, away we went with uh, the candidate was really the only one in the game. You know, John, I, I got to thinking today when I heard that both of these things happened. So you now have a politician who, if she had merely been censured in the legislature, she could still somewhat effectively represent her constituents because she could still run things through her party to get things done if she had to. But now that you are censured, she is censured and has no party, there is really, as I can see it, no effective way for her to be a representative of the people of Hamilton Center. Am I missing something? No, I don't think so. Um, I, you know, when you're a an opposition member in a majority government. I mean, the the truth is there's very little you can do anyway. If somebody's mother turns 90, you can get a certificate signed by the premier or the lieutenant governor. But, you know, really the the way the parliamentary system works, if you're not in, you're out. And there's very little you can do. But but nonetheless, it is going to be difficult for to my mind, I, I thought the censure was overkill uh, because the, the the only effect it's going to have essentially is that she can't speak in the legislature. 
And to my mind, like I'm, I'm just against any kind of cancel culture and uh, uh, certainly wouldn't want to see it coming from the other direction. And I think the problem with the censure vote today was it broke down entirely on party lines. Mm. So you've basically got uh, Doug Ford's conservatives and maybe one or two liberals and then everybody else voting the other way. And so, you know, it's it was such a partisan vote that uh, because the NDP uh, stuck with uh, Sarah Jama, they they were against her being uh, censured. Um, so, you know, to me, it was a bit of overkill. I listened to some of that six hour debate last Friday. And uh, I also hate virtue signaling wherever I see it. And unfortunately, we were getting a Tory version of that. So, you know, uh, and, and unfortunately, I get we have to go back to Styles because I think if Styles had, um, you know, rejected uh, JAMA early on in this controversy, it's possible Ford wouldn't have gone ahead with the censure motion. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the thing would have been tidied up, you know, a week ago and we wouldn't have had, it was a little ugly. I didn't like the look of it today, to be honest, the vote and, and the debate last week. Uh, the thing that, and I share your view about the, the censure and I mean, as I was just, as I said, before the show, I was talking with Scott Thompson on his show and I am almost a free speech absolutist. I, I, I don't like the idea that you cannot speak. We can make decisions about whether what you say is offensive. We seem to have a tough time in this country, in this province and sometimes this city deciding well, what is allowed and what isn't allowed, that thing tends to be very confusing. But I do worry, you know, in the States, we have seen that impeachment has now become a regular commonplace political play. That's it just now is if you, if you are president, chances are you're going to get impeached. That's just, that's one of the things It never happened. And then now it's a regular thing. I can see this now becoming that now that this box has been opened, I can see this becoming a more regular thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm I'm big on freedom of speech, and uh, that includes uh, uncomfortable conversations. Um, you know, clearly she is not a fan of Israel. Uh, everybody in Hamilton that cares about this issue knows that. To me, once a once a person is kind of exposed for what they are, is it really necessary to uh, then use the chopping block? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, and you run the risk of making somebody into a martyr. Um, I, I think uh, it's unfortunate that Styles didn't move more quickly and uh, demonstrate a little more leadership uh, when she should have. And I think, you know, I, I doubt if Ford would have jumped in. It looked like this thing was going to go on and on and on. It, it is, yeah. it is though, very, as I say, it's a very confusing spot we're in right now because many of the same people who would be arguing you can't censure her because she has to be able to speak her mind would be the same people saying if a conservative politician had stood up and said something that was anti-trans or something like that, they'd be the first one to yell, that person must be censured or shut down because that's offensive. We, we seem to want to pick and choose when we get offended and what the issues are that we want to be offended by and who should be allowed to speak and who shouldn't. It's not a clear-cut thing where we all agree across the board on the idea of free speech or no free speech. Well, maybe for the next three years, she'll be the left's answer to Randy Hillier. Who knows? <laughs> we will see. we got to go into just a second here, but because she's now in this position where she represents Hamilton Center but really can't do much 
for Hamilton Center, at least in the legislature. Does she have to apologize to remove the censure blockage just so she can do her job, or is that not a thing? I'm not. I'm not sure. It would uh, you know? She's she's apologized three times and clearly did not mean it when she apologized. So no, I I, I think uh, the censure is on. Um, I I don't know what she could do uh, to to make it go away. And I and frankly, I don't think she wants to. Uh, some mm. some of the stuff she's posted just today would indicate that she's probably more comfortable with the stance that she took in the first place. And uh, and she's getting support. Uh, you know, there's a number of uh, the usual people online and in Hamilton that are that are giving her enough support that, um, you know, obviously she's got three years to think about the rest of her future. Uh, re-election is probably a much more distant possibility now. But, um, you know, she's got three years. It's uh, not a bad gig. Not three and well-paid she, years. That's right. Yeah. And she's she's got... Uh, She's absolutely unmuzzled now. She can say anything she wants. Except that she can't. <laughs> Not in the legislature well, anyway. <laughs> but she no, can say it outside the, yeah, the legislature. They were chasing her with cameras today. And uh, so she'll still get a chance to speak. It just won't be inside the chamber. But nobody pays attention to what goes on in there anyway. All right. Here's my prediction. City council run. It's, I don't think it's going to work for her uh, getting reelected. I might be surprised. I don't think Hamilton, again, I think Hamilton Center will elect whoever the NDP put forward. I could absolutely, though, see Sarah Jama on your city council ticket next election. Well, she'd be running against Narinder Nan or uh, one of the progressives that's unless, already on council. Unless you look to a different ward somehow. That's happened before. And um, yeah. we'll see. Yeah. We will yeah, see. But, um, you know. To she, try Flamborough. She, uh, yeah, and that may, not, that may not work so well. But but the name recognition, uh, many people in this area had no idea who Sarah Jamma was before this week or last week. They do now. I don't know. I'm not suggesting that was the plan here, but it has certainly done that job. Indeed it has. That is John Best, uh, publisher of the Bay Observer. John, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is apparently a decline in family doctors in this area. And whether it's a decline, we'll find out in just a second, or whether it's simply that we have so many more people moving to this area so the numbers, the ratio is off, uh, I'm not sure. But... Whatever we have, we need a lot more family doctors in this area. And yet it seems that this is a huge problem to find these family doctors. Let's find out why. Dr. Jason Perfetto is family physician and he's the chair of clinical skills and MD admissions with McMaster University. Joins us now. Doctor, thanks for the time today. Hi, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate you doing this. It, it, it is, to me, a bit of a puzzle, and I'm trusting that you can explain why we're facing what we are, because in so many careers, not just medical careers, any career, if you are out there and you hear that there is a huge need in a certain area, people tend to often gravitate to that because they know they will get a good career, they can make a good career, they can have a job forever. That doesn't seem to be the case necessarily with family doctors. People in medicine may be looking for other branches of medicine. What's going on? Yeah, it's a really interesting but complicated problem. And I think primarily what people don't appreciate is the flow from applying to medical school, getting accepted, applying to a a residency program in family medicine, getting accepted, and then coming out the other end and what happens. So 
In short, we actually have more medical students now in Ontario than we ever have in the entire history of the programs that we have in the six schools. So we've increased enrollment. We have more medical students coming in. The proportion of medical students in medical school that generally gravitate towards family medicine has slightly decreased. So that number is usually in the 40 to 50 percent range. So about half of the medical students who graduate go into family medicine. That number right now is in the mid to high 30s. Why? And then in residency, this is the last piece of the puzzle that gets a bit complicated, is that the family medicine residents who graduate right now, it's only about 10 to 20 percent of them are actually going into comprehensive five day per week family medicine. So what is it that is unappealing? And I don't know if that's the right word, but I'll use it. What is it that's not as appealing, maybe I should say, about family medicine compared to other branches? Yeah, so there, there's, there's a, we call this the hidden curriculum, right? So when you enter medical school, there's a whole variety of culture and perspectives and rumors and things that you hear. And I think one of the initial things that happens is that family medicine is, has the shortest amount of time required. So it's only a two-year training program, whereas other programs are longer. And while this might sound a little bit paradoxical, a lot of students find that a little bit intimidating. So if after two years, they're going to be out in the field, fully licensed and practicing, for many, they don't feel that that's enough. And they do wish to go into longer training programs like internal medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, surgery, etc. The other thing is that generally speaking, and this is you, you will not see this in a textbook, but you'll hear it in the hallways of medical school, is that family medicine is considered one of the less, less sexier options in mm. medicine in that it's two years. You're not a, quote, specialist. I mean, you are, but you aren't part of the Royal College. It's, it's a bit of a different training program, and it doesn't necessarily have that, that dinner table glamour when you say, I'm a neurosurgeon. Right. right. So there's there's a variety of things that just in the culture of how we talk about family medicine and medical school. Yeah, there's status involved is another way. Is there a pay difference? If you become a, a you know, if you, as I say, if you stick around and become a specialist, do you get paid more? So the mean or the average salary for most specialties, not all, but for most specialties is higher than the average salary for family medicine. However, the range of salaries for family medicine goes from very low to very, very high. So the range is drastically greater than most specialties. So most specialties cluster around the average or cluster around the mean, and there's not a ton of variety. In family medicine, a lot of, is a, a lot of it is based on how much you work and how many patients you have. So on the average, yes, specialties get paid more, most of them, not all of them, than family medicine. But family medicine has a wide range of how much you can get paid depending on how much you work. When I was thinking about this story, um, now I'm going back a lot of years here. My, when my father went to university, uh, when my dad was at university, he went to Royal Military College. And I don't know if they still do this, but at that time, you could either pay your way through or you could go to university and for every year of university, you could pay your way essentially with a year of military service. And that was your choice. And, I've, and I was thinking about that as I was thinking about this today, thinking, I wonder, is there a way the government could incentivize family medicine by saying, look, we will pay your way or, or a chunk of your way through medical school if you promise at the end to go into family medicine? It, it, I don't even know if that would be an incentive for people. 
Yeah, that, that that's actually a great question. That idea is being flirted with right now as we speak. General return, return of service re- agreements are in place, especially for international medical graduates who come from outside of Canada to Canada. The only way they're allowed in is if they sign an agreement, say three, five or 10 years, depending, to practice in a rural part of Canada that currently has no doctors. Part of the trouble, though, is that even with a return to service agreement, you will not retain family doctors in the long run. And this is also just going back to your previous question. This is part of the problem with family medicine is that and and, I mean, I've adopted this. My father's a family doctor. He's adopted this. It's a it's a profession where to really do well and to thrive, you have to plant your feet in one geographic location and stay there. And for a lot of people, you know, like myself, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a family. I'm married. I'm from the area. I grew up in the area. There's a very strong drive for me to stay in the area, whereas a lot of medical students are nomads, you know, so they're not necessarily married or settled down. They don't have a partner. They don't necessarily have strong geographical ties to any one area. And as a result, there's not necessarily that responsibility or drive to keep them in any one community. And I wonder if it's the same as it was once upon a time. I mean, again, I'm throwing all these connections that I have in my brain. But, you know, when you watch Field of Dreams, if you ever seen the movie and Doc Graham, who, you know, had this family, and I know it's fiction, but had this family practice for like 60 years and it was a, a huge part of the community. There's something to a lot of people that would be very appealing to be that important in so many people's lives. But I wonder if it's the same as it once was. Oh, you're starting to get in some of the meat and potatoes of the, of the issue. The, this is where a lot of the nuanced discussion is starting to go. So one of the things is, in early medical school, there's a lot of ideological talk. And part of the problem is that it's just that. It's ideological. It's blue sky thinking. A lot a lot of it, I mean, I, I say this with respect, is ivory tower perspective. And then when you graduate, you're out in the field, you're out in the trenches, you're practicing five days per week, and you start to see a lot of problems. You're trying to help and fix a lot of things. And unless you, and I was, I was literally talking about this with my medical student and my resident today, unless you feel a sense of responsibility and pride, truly, genuinely, in serving your community, and use those words, your community, something that you belong to, a lot of the time, the attrition rate grows because people dwindle and they don't, they don't feel that fire anymore. For me, I was born and raised in Stony Creek, Hamilton area. This is my area. I share it with many, many tens of thousands of people. And I feel an actual responsibility to stay here and to practice and to serve my community. And I don't think that sentiment, and I understand, but I don't think that sentiment is is shared by many family medicine graduates. Mm. Before I let you go, I actually got a text in from somebody with a question. I thought it was a great one. They said that they have had a family doctor for years since they were a kid and they are now in their 50s. And that family doctor surely at some point is either going to retire or, you know, whatever else. What happens in those cases? If you have a bunch of these family doctors that are getting up in years, what happens to the people when that doctor leaves? So it it depends on the succession planning of the family doctor. There's many family doctors who have a plan in place and in that they work with the local physician recruiter. They're trying to get family medicine graduates on board. And they do a succession plan where they phase out as the new doctor phases in. Um, It totally depends on the individual doctor, the geographical area, 
and whether or not like electronic medical records are in place, the office is well set up, it's a good practice, etc. So ideally, you hope for someone to succeed the practice. But the truth is, that's a bit of a crapshoot. Sometimes it happens, and sometimes it, it doesn't. And we've had situations where doctors do retire, they're unsuccessful in getting someone to follow their practice. And as a result, all of these patients become orphaned. Is that a question then? We got to run. But is that a question that you should ask? If you have a doctor that's getting up in years and you don't want to say, hey, you're old, but I mean, if they are getting up there, is that a fair question to ask a family doctor? What's your succession plan or should I start looking for a replacement? If your doctor is in his or her 50s or 60s and has been around for a long time, I bet you they'll stick around for another 10 to 15 years. And yes, it is probably a fair question to ask. With, with being respectful. I think it is fair. Dr. Jason Perfetto, uh, McMaster University, uh, ch- Chair of Clinical Skills and MD Admissions. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Great topic. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson, he is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys. He is the guy who runs ComChoice Realty in Dundas. Dundas is Citizen of the Year a few years ago. Uh, Dundas is leading music producer and promoter now. <laughs> if you were re- for a free concert, oh uh, well, that's okay. It was well not free for you. No, somebody said how much were the tickets? I said well, there's only one. It was over a hundred grand. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, hey, welcome back. Thanks for coming in. It was fun so far. This is uh, this is a special anniversary, and not just for us. I I was shocked. I was shocked. Uh, I don't know, a week or two ago when someone said, you realize it's been eight years since the Jose Bautista bat flip home run? It's like, that can't be eight years ago, but it is eight years, 2015. If that blew you away, tonight is the 30th anniversary of this. So the tying run is at second. The run that would win the World Series is at first, and Joe Carter is the batter. Here's the pitch on the way, a swing and a belt. Left field, way back. Blue Jays win it! The Blue Jays are World Series champions as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning, and the Blue Jays have repeated as World Series champions. Touch them all, Joe. You'll never hit a bigger home run in your life. The good old days of Blue Jays baseball when we didn't have press conferences after with people enraged at taking Joe Carter out of the game for a pinch hitter in the second inning or (laughs) removing, I don't know, I can't remember who the starter was for that game. I can't remember. I'll have to look that one up. Someone out there is going to know. No, I don't know. You know what? Now I'm just driving myself nuts. Someone out there is going to know the answer to that So while you look it up, where were you? Well, where was I? I was in my basement and I jumped up and my fist put a hole through the ceiling in my basement. You were that mad? No, I was, I just, you just jumped up and celebrated. My fist went right through the ceiling. I'm tall. Didn't real, didn't intend to do it. <laughs> Where were you? I was in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And we had just played Thunder Bay with the Brantford Smoke that night. Of the Colonial Hockey League. Oddly enough, I was in a bar which was foreign to me, but that was, they had TVs and we went back and it was, it was great. It was Ben Johnson. Great. Well, it was because unlike, see, I think there are moments in NHL hockey that are fantastic, but it's specific to a, a particular fan base. This was the whole country. 
Yeah. I'm sure that <clears throat> if everybody in the country had a low ceiling like I did in the basement, there would have <laughs> been 30 million holes punched in ceilings because everybody was into yeah. this. It everybody. Was, it was it was not Paul Henderson, 1972 great, and most of the listeners uh, may not have been born then, but it wasn't Paul Henderson great, but it was Canadian great. And uh, It has to be top, f- would you say top five Canadian sports moments of all time? Oh, I would think so. Yeah. Yeah, I would have to think so. I mean, indiv- I'm not talking about long time things like, you know, every time this comes up, we always hear like, well, Terry Fox, which I agree with. But I, Terry Fox was not a one-time moment thing. That was a, a, a... If Terry Fox was a one-moment thing, Terry Fox is the greatest athlete in Canadian history. Agreed. So it wasn't a Terry Fox moment because it was a sad ending. Well, and also because it was four it was, months, yeah, whatever it was, five months. Weeks and weeks yeah. of marathon after marathon. But as far moment. as a singular moment, I would say Paul Henderson has to be in there and probably Sidney Crosby has to be in there. Not ahead of Joe, I don't think. That uh, well, touch them all. Well, and, and I would say you said Ben Johnson. I know Ben Johnson didn't end all that well, but at that moment, that Friday night or Saturday night, whichever it was, I don't know that there were too many bigger moments in Canadian sports. Duck Sports Bar, the Collins Hotel, uh, 88. The roof blew off the place, and it only took 12 seconds. Less Not, than well, 12 no, seconds. No, 9.87. Yeah, but less than 12 seconds. Yeah, yeah. So it was a... Uh, Greatest uh, greatest accomplishment in less than 10 seconds in sporting history. Better than Secretariat. Well, and because we wanted Ben Johnson to win, but we hated Carl Lewis so much. Yeah. It wasn't even, it was partially about Ben Johnson winning, but more it was about just not watching Carl Lewis win. It was. But no, I, I would, I, I mean, people can throw other ones in there as well, uh, and everyone's going to have their opinion on what gets in there and those are all fine, but I, I would suggest that Joe Carter is somewhere in the top five, oh. somewhere. So, so what we, if you want to put him number, yeah. I don't think he could be number one. I'm with you, but if you want to put him anywhere between two and five, you could make a compelling case yep. for why that should be. Absolutely. 30 years ago. I can't believe it's 30 years. Yep. I cannot believe it's been 30 years ago. I was 72 then. <laughs> Well, you know, I, at least it was better than the year before for where I was. Cause the year before my wife and I, we were just newly married and we were at someone else's wedding. They be, had. I was going to say, be careful how you frame No, this. no. They <laughs> had been, this other couple unbeknownst to them and just terrible luck had, they had their wedding scheduled months before that turned out to be the night of the clinching game of the first world series for the Jays. So we're at this wedding. And back then, I don't know if people can picture these things. Now everyone's got their phone. I had this little handheld one-inch screen Casio portable television, black and white thing with a giant antenna. And I'm sitting in the back corner of this room for the wedding reception with a headphone in, an earphone, watching this game. And within, Don, within an inning and a half, everybody in the room knew that I had the game. Because we didn't have cell phones then, otherwise everyone would no, be following. that's right, of course. And so now everyone's looking at me and anytime something happens, I'm now having to give hand signs that are going all over. I'm the one person. So it's like, you know, two fingers, you know, two, one, one finger. And then you do the T sign, like top of two fingers again, <laughs> top two, and then one out. Like you're doing, I, I, I don't do sign language, but I'm I was making sh- it up. Sure, the bride was very impressed. She was the, they were the one, the head table did not see it. Everyone else though keeps looking over and you hear like whispers around and the unfortunate part for them. And I felt so badly for them was at the end of 
the speeches and whatever else they said. And now, you know, we'd like you to stick around and we're going to dance or whatever. And it was like the lights went on and the cockroaches fled the room. Everybody bolted for their cars. Really? Everybody bolted for their cars. It was a big deal. It was enormous. We, I, I think we lose track that first time yeah. of what a big deal that really was. It's well, it's very similar to, I mean, if you weren't alive or old enough to remember that, think of the Raptors four or five years ago. Yep. That was the closest thing that I can think of in recent memory. Well, let me draw the parallel that I think I have. Ben Johnson beat Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis, Lewis was from the U.S. Mm-hmm. And when the Blue Jays won, we beat the U.S. All Twice. 29 yep. teams. Yep. Like we were, we were now okay, and we've always had U.S. envy. We want to be as good as the USA. We want to be this. We want to be that. We're losing hockey badly, but back then it was a big deal to beat the U.S. And the same as the Raptors, like we Canada beat the U.S. And I think that has a lot of cachet mm-hmm. here because it draws the country together. I don't watch the Raptors on a regular basis, but boy, I didn't miss many playoff games. No, my, 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 my parents both gone now, but my parents were not diehard basketball fans by any stretch. But when the Raptors got into that stretch, they latched onto that. You don't even call them during a game. I mean, they would pick up, they would pick up the phone from myself or my sister or our spouses or their grandkids at any time, day or night, but don't call them during the Raptors. Not in the playoff run. Yeah, isn't that cool? Isn't that which cool? Which was great. Yeah. Which was great that you could be that passionate about something. And the best part is that it turned out. Like we, around here, there haven't been many great successes among teams recently. The one thing you can say though is more often than not, other than the Ticats, when the teams from this area have got to a final, very seldom, but when they've got there, they've generally won. I mean, the, the, the Raptors did it. We haven't seen the Leafs get to the final, so we don't know what that's like. The Jays, they did it twice. TFC did it. The, the Forge here in Hamilton have generally done it. Like, you know, Dundas Real McCoys. Dundas Real McCoys. There's another one. The Bulldogs have been to the finals twice when they were in Won Hamilton. Won a Robertson Cup twice, like the Real yep. McCoys, yep. different cup. So, but here's, here, here's the difference, though, I think. And uh, we talk about this stuff all the time, and it was huge. If the Leafs ever win the Stanley Cup... It will be, there will be nothing in Ontario that will match it. You think so? Yeah, I I really think that the Raptors will be, like the Raptors thing was cool and it was wonderful. I think if the Leafs ever win it again, now I'm too old to see it, but if the Leafs ever win it, it will, it will be hard to measure anything that will seemingly be as important. I, I, and I, we'll still have... Joe Carter will still have Terry Fox, God bless him, and the Raptors, but I don't think there'll be anything to compare to the Leafs. I don't know. I, and the only reason I don't know is I've always, I, I've long thought that, but I, I, I may be changing my tune a little bit only because basketball is such a multicultural sport that people from all over the world, especially younger people, have really latched onto. And so I don't know that hockey appeals as broadly to new Canadians as basketball or soccer would. There's an awful lot of new Canadians that go to leap games, so you look. Uh, oh, I, look, I'm not saying it's going to be, a, if it ever happens, I'm not saying it's going to be something that happens and nobody notices. It's not going to be like a WNBA championship parade. 
Yeah, no, I, it, uh, it, I, I might be showing my age. I might no, be it could be. It could uh, look. It, it would be enormous. It would we, be enormous. We'll and probably it, never know. Well, that's sadly the, the case. And when I point out the WNBA championship rate, I saw a video. I don't know if it's even true, but it, it came across social media a while back of a WNBA team on their double decker buses, and there was literally nobody in the streets and. I don't know if that was before the parade route when they were just driving to it or what, but it was like. You would think it was a highlight. Well, yeah. Anyway, it would be, it would be a big, big deal for sure. I just, I I don't know. I don't know. But no, I, I, I cannot believe that 30 years ago is, uh, is Joe Carter. It's, um, pretty remarkable. That's cool. And it is pretty remarkable that we've had, I mean, Bautista was amazing. That was a, that was a moment. And the next year, the Encarnacion home run against Baltimore in the wild card game, the walk-off was amazing. If they're not World Series. No. And the Donaldson dash, if you remember that, yeah. against Texas. But none of those, I can't believe they haven't even been back to a World Series since 93. Yeah, but they're really doing a good job. I listened to the president. I know. Everything's on track. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know... That, that press conference a week or so ago with the, uh, with the president talking about how great the general manager is doing, all I want to know is what have you won? You know, lots of general managers, the, the expectation I think in professional sports is that you win or at least you get to the championship. I mean, by the time you get to a championship round, to the championship series, whether it's a Super Bowl, a Grey Cup, we've seen this. The, the better team does not always win. There are elements yeah. of good fortune. Sometimes the better team wins often, but there are lucky bounces. There's injuries. There's lots of things that go on. It's a crapshoot when you get to the final, but at least get to the final. Well, I, I think we talked about it last time. I think I brought it up. Alex Anthopoulos, probably monkeyed up his last name. Pretty good. And, uh, he hasn't won a world series in Atlanta. Um, has he? Oh yeah, he did. Yes. Yeah, he did. And he, but he's been there every damn year since he wasn't good enough to be first in the Dodgers the GM yep. of the Jays and they bring these guys in and all they do is go well we're doing our best and we made some mistakes and are you kidding me I could have wrote that speech for him it's terrible be accountable you and they and they do it's not like they're saying they have good players that aren't good players they've got good players I don't blame the manager, but they've got, you got to have the cojones to make the tough decisions. Pat Gillick did. We talked about, he, he, they had a great team. They changed like eight guys and won it again. So you're never good enough, but quit being an apologist and saying, really, I'm doing a great job. And the guy I hired as GM is doing a better job. Sorry, we can't beat anybody. Scored one it's, run it's, in it's, two games. It's it's a yeah. It's it's not exactly a convincing case that they are making. If they were in court and they were the defense lawyer, oh. their person would have just gone to jail for the rest of their life. The Hamilton Cardinals would have scored one run in two you games. You think? You would think. Uh, by the way, the answer was Dave Stewart started game six for the Blue Jays. I was close. Uh, that, that year, I had forgotten about Dave Stewart. I mean, I knew he played for the Jays, but I forgot that he was the starter of that Another time. guy they brought in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They yeah. brought all those guys in. Yes. Ricky Henderson. Like, who needs Ricky Henderson? 
they brought him in. That, and that he, was slight overkill. That was, <laughs> you've got you've got Olerud, Molitor, and Alomar one, two, three in batting in the league that year. And was like, let's add Ricky Henderson just because. Just, just for, because. Just for fun. Yeah, that's when, when do you see that? When do you see that happen these days? It's just, uh, well, also Ricky Henderson today would be about a $30 million a year player. Not easy to squeeze in under no. the salary cap. Don, tomorrow night, the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to play the Washington Capitals with a guy named Alex Ovechkin, who now has hair as gray as yours, who does not have a goal yet this year, went two games without a single shot on net for the first time ever in his career. And a lot of people are saying... Is this the first time we're seeing Alex Ovechkin slowing down? Do you think a guy who has been as consistent as he has, he's 38 now, I think, is it possible for a guy to just drop off this fast? If, if that's what we're seeing, can it happen that quickly or would you expect it to be a much slower process to fall off? No, it happens pretty quick. You go out and all of a sudden you go, I can make that shot and then you can't. And I think I like he's not done scoring goals. Make no, no he, mistake. No, 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 no. He's well, unless he gets hurt, he's going to be scoring goals. Yep. Well, not yet. He will get goals this year. Sure. If he he's will. if he is playing, if he is on the ice, he will score goals. Sure. He, because he is going to be given every opportunity in the world until he takes his skates off to score goals. The I, I read that on the weekend. And I, I saw that, and the first thing that came to my mind was Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods is going to win 75 majors, no, right? 75 tournaments. Majors. But I'm, I'm being a little bit full of okay. BS. All right. <laughs> but remember when he was winning them on a regular basis, and he will surpass Jack Nicklaus in the next four years. All right. He's going to win so many majors that he's going to break that record and sometimes old legends seem to be able to hang on to things. And I thought of Gretzky, and I got thinking, it, it's considered the Canadian game. Gretzky is considered the greatest player to ever played the game. When you talk about the greatest players to ever play the game of hockey, you can talk about Alex Ovechkin, but he is not in the top five, so he's never considered the greatest so I would tell you that there are a group of people, including me, that hope he never attains that level. But when you see what, uh, you know, outside of, um, of, of Taggart's wife chasing him down the driveway, smashing in the back of his window for being inappropriate about something, and then he went off the rails, and everybody assumed uh, Tiger Woods was going to win more majors than Jack Nicklaus and going like home. And it just stopped. When he's 35 years old and he's won one since. Yeah. And it was an amazing story when he won that one, but it was, you're right, that, that moment was like the line in the sand and all of a sudden everything changed. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think Alex Ovechkin has had that line in the sand, but the fact that he is so tied and his social media have pictures of him and Putin which I'm sure he's fearful of taking down, there's a lot of people going, I'm good if Wayne Gretzky stays as the greatest goal scorer in the history of the National Hockey League. Mm, so no, I don't think so. I think Alex Ovechkin will keep playing. He'll be 87 years old if he has to be. He will keep playing until he gets that record. And the Capitals will keep him around because 
they want to have that ceremony yeah. at center ice. If there's a hockey god, though, he'll fall one short. The yeah, well, after um, what's his name, who played for the uh, the Leafs after playing for the San Jose Sharks, Phil Kessel. No, no, no. Uh, I'll think of it in a second. Whole Who's bunch the, of NHL anyway, uh, San Jose who Cups. played more games than Gordie Howe, um, Gardner. No, no, no. I'll think of it in a second. He played for the Leafs with Mitch Marner. Liv, um, I'm drawing a complete blank on his name, but that guy. We can't even, think, can't even think of his name, but he played more NHL games than Gordie Howe. Here's the thing about Wayne Gretzky. I just pulled this up because I couldn't remember. His last year in the NHL, when we're talking about guys like falling off quickly, yep. his last year in the NHL was not a debacle. I mean, he had 62 points in 70 games. A lot of guys, Yeah, Gretzky. A lot of guys will be quite fine with that for, yep. a, uh, for a year. But he had nine goals that last year, and he's made the comment before that there were, early in my career, I would have weekends with nine goals. Yeah. What year did he retire? Patrick Marlowe, thank you. Yeah, Marlowe was the guy that we just stuck around, and then you go, okay. Like, he just kept playing until he got the record and then disappeared. But the thing with Gretzky is he had never, this is amazing, Gretzky had never been less than a point a game for a, a season in his career until that last year when he got 62 points in 70 games. But he went from 90 points to 62 and said, that's it, I'm out, I'm done. What year did he retire? 99. There you go. It was all very poetic. Yeah, he was playing until 1999. But he... he and the, uh, no slouch. No, but the year before he had 90 points. Yeah. He was not Wayne Gretzky the way we remember Wayne Gretzky, but it looked, it felt as if that last year, it just went away. The Magic, just, he was a good player, but he was not. Was that the year that they opened the uh, the uh, winery and distillery and had Gretzky 99 whiskey? I don't know if that was the year they opened it, but yeah. but it just, it, it, it when I say could it be that Ovechkin is all of a sudden, could it happen that quickly? It felt like it with Gretzky. It, it, the numbers don't suggest that it was, but it felt like it happened very quickly. Yeah, but nine goals, you're right. He, he As he said, that was a good weekend in the old days. Yeah, yeah, but now uh, it's a now it's a season. But what happens? What do you do if you're? I mean, as I say, I think if Ovechkin gets twenty five goals this year, I think he needs seventy something to catch seventy four, something like that. He, he's going to stick around. He he will literally stick around until he cannot skate anymore to get those goals. And that it, it, who knows how long it will take because the team is bad and. The, every every other team knows what's going on now. They're just trying to set up Alex Ovechkin for goals. Yep. And if you just take that away, they're not scoring. So it, it, it it's not going to be an easy thing to, to happen. But I just, I see 0% chance that if he's healthy and able to play, that he doesn't eventually get it. And coaches coach to win. So you put him in that spot forever. Does he get the benefit of the doubt? He gets a benefit out from the top of the circle. Okay, the owner. One-timer forever. Yeah, the owner wants that to be done as a Washington Capital. So whoever is hired to coach that team, even if we can't win, you will get Alice Ovechkin on the ice for every power play. You will get him the puck on every opportunity. That is your job. That's a deal I'm cutting with, with the owner, though. So we might be, and the Washington Capitals historically have, I believe, the worst record in the NHL 76, history. I believe, or 73-74, something like for that. For wins, yeah. they, they won eight. I was going to say, I think they won one. So they won, they eight. won eight. Yeah. So the owner walks in and says, I don't care if we ever win a game, this guy is going to beat Gretzky. Your job is safe. Sure it is. Because the coach As says, long as he scores some goals. Coach says, 
okay, but we're not going to win a game. Just make sure he scores some goals. Yep. Don, I'm going to give you a list of names. All right, we were talking about best moments. It's not supposed to be a theme today. We were talking about Blue Jay moments and Canadian moments. I'm going to give you a list of names. You tell me which one should be at the top of this list all time. Everybody Chris, should know I never hear this stuff before. No, I never know. Don does not know what's coming. So Christine Sinclair retired this week. Christine Sinclair, Haley Wickenheiser, Clara Hughes, Penny Alexiak, Nancy Green, Chantal Petitclerc, Katrina LeMay-Done, Brooke Henderson, Cindy Clausen, Barbara Ann Scott. Who would you put as the greatest female Canadian athlete of all time? Or there's so, maybe there's someone else that I haven't included. Barbara Ann Scott. Would you? No. Sinclair. Would you? She is the all-time world's leading goal scorer in international hockey, men or soccer, men and women combined. That is quite an accomplishment. Brooke Henderson, let's... She could be end up there. Let's do that in 10 years. Yeah, she could be. Um, and th- there is not a bad pick on there. Uh, Haley Wickenheiser is wonderful. You asked for the best. It's Sinclair. Yeah, I, Haley Wickenheiser, I'm not sure she can be it because I'm not sure that she is the greatest Canadian women's hockey player of all time. She was, but I think that she may have been caught now. Our captain, whose name is you said, and I've forgotten because it's 30 seconds ago, um, Poulin. Yeah, Marie-Philippe Poulin. She, she may be the one that yep. goes there. Penny Alexiak, uh, she's been unbelievable in the pool. But again, I would say let's stretch this out for a little while longer because Sinclair, Sinclair did. Is, has more international goals than any man or woman on the planet. Beckham, Pele. That can't be true. She doesn't have, no, she doesn't have more goals than uh, international goals than she she does for Canada. She does for women. I, I'm going to have to look that one up. I don't think that could be right. She can't possibly. Well, Maybe I'm. I don't make stuff up. Well, I don't, I don't know. I guess a lot, but I don't make stuff up. I don't think anybody. That's under- not taking anything away from her, but I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, we can we can kick it around, but it's it's. Oh, you are right. The world's all-time leader for international goals scored men or women with a hundred and ninety. There you go. I I I say this all the time. When was the last time I lied to you? No, no, I I knew that it was that there was a huge mark there, but I did not real somehow I didn't put her ahead of Pele. Who's second? I have no idea. I have no idea. Well, like, but. Who's second on my list, you mean? No. Or in goals? In goal, is it Pele? Is it Beckham? I mean, who is it? Those Wouldn't be Beckham. The... Wouldn't be Beckham. It might be someone like... Um, Sue's just walked back. Ronaldo. Beckham's uh, documentary said it's really good. My wife and I are watching it right now. we got one left to go. Probably watch that tonight. We're done. I, I would say, though, as for the list, Christine Sinclair, I, I'm not going to argue with you about her being number one. I think that's a... But well, you can't. Well, you can make an argument, but I yeah. think that you... I. I, I think it would be a hard argument to make that with what she's done that you would not put her there because she's not just she's not just the best in Canada. She was the best in the world. She wasn't just the best for a moment in time. She was the best for a long time. It, I, 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 I don't know that it, you could it, win an argument. It arguing. wasn't Henderson's goal. It's the entire body of work. So, yeah, you can make an argument that, Maybe with me that she's not, you would lose. I I, I don't think you, uh, you can make an argument. I don't know that you're going to win that argument. Yeah. Well, 
Although the person I would put second, and I would put them as a close second because of the uniqueness of what they did, is Clara Hughes. That you won, uh, you won medals in the Summer Olympics as a cyclist and then decided, I've had enough of cycling. I'm going to go into the Winter Olympics as a speed skater and win medals. And when you consider the sport, the long track speed skating and the number of people who do this in like the Netherlands, for example, or South Korea, where these are, this is the sport where if you are a young, great athlete, you're funneled not into like we would be into hockey or football or basketball. You are funneled into that to just decide to do that and make yourself one of the absolute best in the world is a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing. Makes her a great athlete. How did you frame the question? Just who was the greatest Canadian female athlete? So Christine Sinclair, we're both acknowledging is top of that pedestal. It's who is next behind her. And I say, I, my, my vote on that list would be Clara Hughes just because of the uniqueness of what she did. Now, you know, the one thing about Clara Hughes that I don't know if it's something you can learn or if it's something that you're born with. All the sports that she did, both sports, cycling and long track speed skating, there is something that I don't have, which is this capacity to push yourself no matter how much pain you're in. That was something that she clearly was able to do. Pain was not a deterrent to her. And I think if you've got that, and again, I I think you're born with that. I think if you've got that, that you can deal with it and you're a really good athlete, you can become great. I I, I could not do that. There are a lot of people you and I know that are good fastball players, baseball players, hockey players, basketball players that are really good and they push themselves. And then there are the elite people that you refer to that can just go the extra mile. I mean, I can't relate to that. No, who can push I mean, through. doesn't matter how bad it is, you can push through. I get up in the morning, I have to push through to get to the bathroom. <laughs> as long as you don't have to push through in the bathroom. <laughs> that's a whole different problem. You may want to consult your physician if that's the case. Uh, wow. No, but but again, going back to, to Clara Hughes, and we're just sort of leaving Christine Sinclair because I think it's it's so obvious. The thing about Clara Hughes, again, with two sports, Many people would say Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player of all time and one of the greatest athletes of all time. When he switched sports, he was a very mediocre baseball player. The only the only two people that I can think of that I would put in the category here that would be equal that they were stars in two different things were Bo Jackson and Deion Sanders. Yes, there may be others. There may be others, but yeah, but no, but they they, they were stars. They in could both. dominate in, in both, both sports. And Clara Hughes did that. But if you if if, if we want to stay on the um, theme of greatest Canadian athletes, there was a time and a place when Nancy Green would have been in that conversation. Yep, Lori Kane. Yep, uh, I didn't even include Lori Kane, but that's a good choice, right? But Nancy Green was famous when I was a kid. Well, she was the female athlete of the 20th century for Canada, I believe, or of the hundred years. She yeah. was, she was, yeah. But it, we have, we have produced a lot of yep. amazing female athletes in the last 25 years that have changed that conversation. That is true. It's easy to take a snapshot of it, but up to a certain point. But you're talking about a quarter of a decade now. And we have produced a great number of them. Yeah. No, it's... Sinclair uh, included. And a, a long, long career. Well, you don't score the most international goals in soccer by playing for 15 minutes. 
No, and one of the other things that also we never even mentioned. So, best of all time, uh, statistic-wise, long career, and also playing a sport that soccer has a lot more worldwide players cool. than even hockey. I mean, I'm not taking anything away from Haley oh, Wickenheiser, no. but in the international hockey stage, when she was at her best, it was Canada and the U.S., and no other team was competitive yep. with them. In the soccer pitch, in the soccer world, there's a lot, even though women don't have as many top teams as men do, there well, were still a lot of teams that were competitive, and, and she had to play against the States a lot. Come on, let's tell the truth. I mean, so Canada is notoriously been a bit player in the world soccer stage. Like we're ecstatic that the men made it to the Olympics. That tells you all you need to know. Like you're right. It's, it's called the beautiful game, but it's worldwide mm-hmm. and few sports are as worldwide. I'd argue none are as worldwide as soccer and per- probably and sprinting. Uh, Running. That would be the one. I would say that if you could be, yeah, maybe. The, if you are the top runner in the world, like Usain Bolt, now it's a guy, yeah. obviously, but he did it over three Olympics. Everybody in the world who is capable of moving their legs has run. That is the one sport that yeah. you could point to that every person pretty much, or almost every person has participated in to be the top runner is truly the best in the world because everybody does it. And then to do it for three consecutive Olympics... That's why I say that Usain Bolt, even more than Michael Phelps with all his medals, I would say Usain Bolt would go to the top of my list. And so Christine Sinclair, when we're looking at this list, even my argument about Clara Hughes, not every country long track speed skates. There are great long track speed skaters, but to be the best in the world, she was the best in the world at a world game. Uh, We'll be back. Well, actually, I'll be in for Scott Thompson beginning tomorrow for a while. So tune in at three o'clock. That's where you'll hear me. Uh, Don Robertson, thanks for coming in tonight. I guess I'm back in three weeks. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see you when we see you. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.